uh, people who like swimming and want to stay afloat in the water has to use the science principle of buoyancy. Buoyancy is a principle when something immersed in water experience an upward force equal to the amount of its body that is submerged to the water that it displaces. Uh, this is the reason why you can see big boats in the ocean here at the Corniche floating in the water. It's because of the principle buoyancy. The principle works by the enough weight to displace the water, but there's enough space upward and so when it's balanced the boat will float now it is the same for all the objects that are floating in water such as swimmers swimmers use the principle of buoyancy um, now when a person is just learning how to swim the tendency is to struggle in the water you know flapping their hands you know moving and so, instead of expanding their lungs, their lungs are more becoming dense and causing their body to sink in the water. And that's why you will hear swimming instructors to relax, to rest in the water so that you will flow. That's the principle of buoyancy. The more you struggle, the more you sink. The only way for you to, to stay floating in the water is just keep on struggling until you run out of breath. Now this principle somehow is a very good illustration to understand our passage today. Christians are told by the Bible not to worry or to fear. Instead, Christians can rest on God's sovereign goodness. Instead of struggling out of fear or pride, like self-reliance, God encourages his people to find rest in his sovereign care because in him is where we can find our salvation that's the main point of our passage today humbly rest in the sovereign care of god who is our salvation and we will see this throughout our passage which i have carefully divided into four portions testing god testing man test of faith, and test of faithfulness. Alright? Four portions of this passage, or four parts of this sermon, testing God, testing men, test of faith, and test of faithfulness. This uh, outline can be found on the bulletin. It's in, it indicates the uh, verses, and so you can look in there. But first, let's move on to our first point, which is testing God. And I will read from Judges chapter 6, verse 33 to chapter 7, verse 8. All the Midianites, Amalekites, and Kedemites gathered together, crossed over the Jordan, and camped in the Jezreel Valley. The Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon, and he blew the ram's horn, and the Abyssalites rallied behind him. He sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who rallied behind him. He also sent messengers throughout Asher, Sebulun, and Naphtali, who also came to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you said, I will put a wool fleece here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by my strength, as you said. And that is what happened when he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung dew out of it, filling a bowl of water. Gideon then said to God, Don't be angry with me. Let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. That night, God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece was dry and the dew was all over the ground. Now this passage that we're studying today is a little bit long, so what I will do in this passage is to summarize these things into short uh, sentences or short phrases 
so that we can see the main idea of what's going on. We can start the study of our passage by looking at the problem that Israel is facing. If you may remember, Israel is being oppressed by the Midianites. And we can read that in verse 33 being repeated again. In verse 33, the enemy gathered together to confront Israel in a war. And so the question is, what is Israel going to do? It's a problem. And so this can be considered as a test for Israel. What we need to understand at this point is that this problem has happened under the sovereign plan and sovereign control of our God. Remember that in previous sermon, the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of the oppression of the Midianites. But understand that this is a kind of test because looking back to the book of Joshua, Joshua conquered all these nations. And yet there are many people remaining on the land. God told them to cleanse the land and to purify it because His presence will reside among His people. There cannot be an holy thing. The land must be dedicated and pure and holy unto the Lord. In, in uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 21 to 22, you can take note of that. A helpful context was written there to understand our passage today. It says in verse 21 that I will no longer drive out. Before them, any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I did this to test. I did this to test Israel and to see, what's the purpose? Whether or not they would keep the Lord's way by walking in it as their ancestors had. So what's happening, we need to understand what's happening right now in our passage in the sermon text is that this war that's about to happen is a kind of test that came to Israel. With that context in mind, we can understand the progression of the passage. First, the enemies encamp against Israel in verse 33 in Jezreel Valley. In the, in the previous uh, sermon which I um, preached in the beginning of Judges in verse 5, the enemies, the Midianites, as, as many as swarms of locusts. If you don't know locusts, maybe think about many insects together, you know? Or maybe the sand of the sea. This is the kind of description that the Bible describes the enemy of Israel that encamp against them. Second thing that happened is, can be found in verse 34. The Holy Spirit enveloped Gideon. And so this is God's response to their prayer when they cried out to the Lord. So what's happening is that God raised a champion, the main man who will lead Israel for battle. God summoned the Israelites through Gideon to join him in the battle. And remember in Judges 6 verse 14 to 16, to 16 God gave Gideon a promise. God promised in verse 14, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grass of Midian. I am sending you. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. God promised Gideon to deliver or to hand over the enemy to his hand and to Israelites. Now the next progression that we can see is that the Israelites, particularly I will mention these clans, Manasseh, Asher, Sebulun, we can read that in verse 35, and Naphtali rallied behind Gideon, verse 35 to, um, yeah, on that passage. These clans, we will study Judges 1, and verse 21, 27, 30, 31, and 33. There are the clans of Israel that did not obey the command of the Lord to drive out the sinful and unholy people remaining in the land. So we can see what's happening. The clans who should possess or receive their inheritance from the Lord now gathered up to fight against the enemy. 
So here's some big questions that are needed to be answered in this passage. Number one, can God deliver Israel from the huge army, the swarm of locusts, as many as the swarm of locusts uh, army? And then another question is, will God deliver Israel, especially when the people who are going to battle are the people who did not obey him? Two questions are hanging. These questions are needed to be answered to us today in our passage. But for Gideon, there's only one question that is ringing in his ears, in his mind. Gideon's question is, are we going to win this battle? That's what matters for Gideon. And that's the reason why Gideon tested God. It's the first thing that we can see in this first point. Testing God. And we can see that in verse 36 to verse 40. In 36 to 38 of this passage, Gideon said to the Lord, If you will deliver Israel by me, as you said, please give me this sign. And we know the sign that he asked, the fleece. Okay, the test for the fleece to become wet and the, the ground is dry. And then the next morning, another test. What Gideon was really saying to God is that I'm not really sure I can rely on what you promised to me. And so can you give me a sign that you will really do what you have promised? That's the point. Gideon is not necessarily discerning God's will as many of us might have wrongly interpreted this passage. Because Gideon already knew the promise. He knew God's will. God will deliver the Midian to Israel by his hand. He knew God's will. And so why does he need to have a sign? Here Gideon is testing God if God will be true to his word. God, or Gideon, sorry, Gideon doesn't seem to trust what Yahweh had promised. And so he needs visible manageable, uh, tangible signs to manage his situation. Now the second test can be seen in verse 39 to verse 40. We can read, Gideon said, Don't be angry with me. Let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test. See? In the second statement, there it is. He's testing the Lord. Gideon is basically saying, it doesn't matter even if you get angry with me. What matters most is that I know I'm going to win the battle. That's what Gideon is communicating or implying in this passage. A good example or a good illustration to use so that we can understand what's happening here is the concept of Horoscope. Who knows horoscope? I was born in August, so I'm Leo. <laughs> I know horoscope. When I was in the Christian, I used to go to the newspaper section on the uh, selling uh, stall and then go to the horoscope section and read what was being said to me by, on that day. And so if my horoscope says to me that I should wear dark blue, to escape bad luck that day, I would look for dark blue outfit to try to change how my day goes. That's the principle of horoscope. Gideon is seemingly using the same kind of principle in his situation. He needs a sign that somehow he can manage to escape or to change the outcome. He did it not only once, but twice. So what is being communicated here is not really discerning God's will, but doubting the Lord out of fear and out of not trusting God's word. Three problems, fear, doubt, and manipulation, trying to manipulate God. Fear of men causes them to doubt God's word. And even worse, causes them to even manipulate God. 
And so we can see what needs to change in Israel. Gideon is just basically a reflection of everyone in Israel. Despite this, God proves to be loving, patient, and gracious, merciful to Gideon. His compassion to his people is abounding. He will do what he promised. And so, God gave him a sign. But the main objective of God is because he wants to be true to his word. God is true to his word. Now, the story of Gideon is a lot like, on, uh, uh, a lot like to us on how we react on many circumstances in our real life. There are lots of things that we can be afraid in this world, just like how Gideon and the Israelites fear the enemies. All human beings find solution to their problem. Is there anything that we can do to end these struggles in life, to this oppression, to these sufferings that we can experience? Now the problem is, when you look back to Gideon, Gideon focused on the wrong issue. Gideon is so focused on how to win the battle, while the Lord is focused on delivering his people. You see the difference between him and the Lord? Now, like Gideon, sometimes we are too focused on how to win our battle. Sometimes we are too focused on how to be victorious in life. But God is teaching us on his word that what matters is to remember him and what he has done, his salvation. There are two questions again that I want to ask for somehow how this passage relates to us. Can God save us? Like the way Gideon is asking this question. Can God save me? Romans chapter 1 verse 6. God has the power to save people and that is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The next question that we should be asked is, do we even deserve salvation? Do we deserve God's salvation? No, we don't. We are in many ways like Gideon and the Israelites in our passage. In the same way that they were not deserving of God's kindness because of their disobedience, rebellion, and hard-heartedness, we are not also deserving according to Romans 1:18. God's wrath is on us because we do not acknowledge who God really is. In our sinful nature, we reject the Lord. But Romans 3.23 also added the, um, our, the, the worst condition that we have. Romans 3.23 says that no one really seeks after God. In fact, we cannot seek God according, according to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 because we are dead in our transgressions. We have no ability to seek the Lord. But God is true to His word. Since the beginning of all time, God has given a promise. And that's why we can hear today Romans chapter 5 verse 6 to 8. In the richness of God's grace, there is hope that while we were still helpless like Gideon, Christ came. Christ came to die for our sin. Jesus Christ, like Gideon, became our champion. The difference is that Jesus Christ fearlessly faced the battle and died for us. He died to take away our sin and free us from the oppression the accusation of the enemy because of our sin. Our sin was laid to Jesus on the cross. He died for our sin. He was raised back to life again so that the righteousness that he has earned might be credited to those who have repented from their sin and believe in the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Can God save us? Yes. Are we deserving? No. But is God gracious? Yes. He saved us. We should praise the Lord for that. And people today are no different with Gideon and the Israelites in our passage. 
People wanted something that they can manage. Their problem, however, is that they cannot manage God. They cannot manipulate God. Because who is in control? God is in control. And for this reason, because they cannot manipulate God, they go to idols whom they can manipulate. Idols that doesn't move. Hands that was crafted by human hands, formed by human hands. They wanted to manipulate something that they can control. That's the proof why there is horoscopes. Or that's the proof why people go to mediums or tarot cards because they want to control or to know the future. So that somehow they can manage the situation. If they are a bit a little bit practical, people rely on financial advisors, insurance brokers, country migration planners to predict their future. There's nothing wrong with practical planning itself, but there is something wrong if Christians rely solely on these things, on these practical things, and forget relying on the sovereign God who is in control of everything. The Bible calls Christians to stop struggling, stop fearing men, fearing circumstances or situation. Instead, humbly rely on on the sovereign care of our sovereign God. So if you are a child of God, look at this passage and learn You do not need to fear whatever lies in the future because you know that there is a sovereign God who is in control of everything. He knows your future. You can rely on Him. You can sleep without worry because God knows what's ahead of you. You can rest on Him and His goodness. Why? Because God has given us Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 to 7 says, God has raised us in Christ Jesus, seated us in the heavenly places, because in the coming age, God might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Our future lies secure in the hand of God through Christ Jesus. If you have believed the gospel of God's salvation, Christians, you can humbly rest in God's sovereign care. Now, if it is really God who is in control, then who has the right to test anyone? That's the point of point number two, testing men. Let's read chapter 7, verse 1 to 8. Jerubal, that is Gideon, And all the troops who were with him got up early and camped beside the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Moreh, in the valley. The Lord said said to Gideon, You have too many uh, troops for me to hand the Midianite over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, My own strength save me. Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So, 22,000 of the troops turned back, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many troops. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you. He cannot go. So, he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Separate everyone who loves water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lap with their hands to their mouths was 300 men, and all the rest of the troops knelt to drink the water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lap and hand the Midianites over to you. But everyone else is to go home. So Gideon sent all 
of the Israelites to their all the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred troops who took the provisions and their trumpets. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the point of this passage, if we continue on reading in verse one, is that Israel should remember one thing. Jerubal, if you may remember the last sermon, was the new name of Gideon. And what's the name of what's the meaning of Jerubal? He contended with Baal. Right? Because of Gideon's new name, Jerubal, everyone in Israel knows that an altar for an idol called Baal was torn down by Gideon and it was replaced by an altar for Yahweh. <clears throat> Gideon's new name speaks to all Israel. They must choose should they fear the enemy or should they fear the Lord. Gideon's new name, Jerubal, is emphasized by the author here to communicate something significant. Because there are enemies outside of Israel, but there are also enemies inside Israel. And what is that enemy? We can see that it is pride and fear. Verse 2 of our passage, we can see that God said that, God said that Gideon has a large number of troops. If God handed over the Midianites to them, Israel will just self-exalt themselves and say, I saved myself. It's an issue of pride. The second problem is in verse 3. God told Gideon to announce to Israel, whoever is fearful may go home. It's the issue of fear. Israel should only fear the Lord and nothing else. And so what is God's solution to this problem? God removed all the reasons for pride and fear to remain in Gideon's life. And the same should go to Israel's life. And so we can see a significant reduction of the number of army from 32,000 down to 10,000 on the first election. And on verse 4 to verse 6, God said there are still too many Israelites. And so God made another cut by giving Gideon a strange test. People who lap water like dogs are the one who would stay with Gideon for the battle. Now you can ask me the question about what this means. I don't know the meaning of this. All right? I have a conclusion, but I'm not sure about that. The point of this passage is that they were reduced down to 300 men. And they have to fight how much number of the army of Midian. If we will look forward to Judges chapter 8, which I will be preaching on May, they are 135,000 army. How would they win the battle? That's the question. So Gideon's question basically tells him, you by yourself, by your own strength, cannot be proud. You are too fearful of men. Remove that fearfulness in you. Rely on me instead. Fear the Lord. God solved the solution, uh, gave the solution for fear and pride by reducing their army number. Simply, it boils down to remember who the Lord is. We can look back to Judge chapter 6 and the earlier passage that a prophet was sent to Israel telling them that they have forgotten the Lord and what he has done for them. And so what's the solution to their problem? Simply to remember the Lord. This is the point why the author began this passage in Gideon's new name, Jerubal. Jerubal says that Baal's altar was destroyed and replaced with Yahweh's altar. And now that Gideon and the Israelites cannot rely on their own strength, that means they, they can cry out to the one whose altar is erected. And whose altar it is that is remaining in Israel? Yahweh's altar. They can come 
and pray to their true Lord. But they need to repent. They need to repent from their ways. By remembering God and His salvation, Israel will come to themselves and find out the reason why in the first place they are suffering like that. Now this passage speaks to us in many ways because our lives are alike, a lot like Gideon's and the Israelites. We don't trust God and we don't believe that He can take care of us when we fear. That's the message that we are communicating to the Lord. We are, uh, instead of trusting in God, are relying to ourselves when we don't come to the Lord. That's an issue of fear and pride. Fear and pride are just two sides of the same coin. And we can trace this fear and pride all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against the Lord. Adam and Eve hid from a loving God because they feared they would die because of their sin. Their love for themselves, that is pride, is higher or greater than their love for God. Instead of turning themselves to God for repentance, they tried to hide their nakedness from the eyes of a pure and holy God by tying fig leaves together. Can you read fear and pride on that account? That's the same issue that we are going through also during our time today. Our fear and pride becomes evident when fearful circumstances come to us. And so we should even thank the Lord for, that, for those circumstances that come to us. Because it tells us the condition of our heart and what we need to do during that moment of time. We need to remember who the Lord is and we need to remember His salvation that was given to us in Christ Jesus. If you really understand the good news of Jesus Christ, this passage is a good reminder that sin and shame need to be openly surrendered to God by relying on His sovereignty. He is in control. God is righteous and we deserve His condemnation because of our sin. God is just to put us into death. If we are really believing in the gospel of Jesus, Jesus Christ, we need to accept that fact before we can even believe the good news of God's salvation. Because the issue of pride and, and fear needs to be killed first before we can believe the gospel. If that doesn't happen, I don't think the gospel will matter to us or will make sense to us. Why should you fear when you know there is no more reason to fear death? Why should you boast and rely on yourself when you know that you can't? Instead, rely on Jesus who graciously offered His righteousness for free. Rely on God's salvation. Fear and pride must be repented and surrendered to the Lord at the earliest. Otherwise, it can kill our soul if left unchecked. God can easily deliver Gideon and the Israelites. He is God. He is powerful. But because of God's great love for them, God slain their inner, the enemy within, before slaying the enemy outside. Brothers and sisters, like Gideon, or like what we can learn from this passage, we can rely to the Lord. Kill fear and pride in our life. God has the right to test us through many circumstances. The reason is, because we need to repent from our sin and humbly rely on the salvation that comes from the Lord. So God can test men so that they would rely on Him in faith. And now this faith is what we'll, we will see continuously being communicated and being refined in the life of Gideon in the next passage. Gideon's newly given faith 
was tested in action. Tested faith in action. That's our point number three. Let's read from verse 9 to verse 22 of chapter 7. That night, the Lord said to him, Get up and attack the camp, for I have handed it over to you. But if you are afraid to attack the camp, go down with Pura, your servant. Listen to what they say, and then you will be encouraged to attack the, to attack the camp. So, when you, so he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites, Amalekites, and the Kedemites had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts, and their camels were as innumerable as the sand on, on the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling his friend about the dream. He said, listen, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread came t- tumbling into the Midianite camp, struck a tent, and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so, it, so that it collapsed. His friend answered, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite come over him. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to Israel's camp and said, Get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each of the men a trumpet in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other hand. Watch me, he said to, me, to them, and do what I do. When I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me blow the trumpets, you are also to blow your trumpets all around the camp. Then you will say, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 300 men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. They blew the trumpets trumpets, and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and shattered their pitchers. They held their torches in their left hands, their trumpets in their right hands, and shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Each Israelite took his position around the camp, and the entire Midianite army began to run, and they cried out as they fled. When Gideon's men blew their 300 trumpets, the Lord caused the men in the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. They fled to Akasha house in the direction of Serera, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah near Tabat. Then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. Now, if you may remember, we read Hebrews 11 a while ago about the whole of faith. <clears throat> so you may be asking me right now, why is Gideon listed there if he is a fearful person and a proud person? But let's study this passage so that we can see the faith that was given to Gideon. In verse 9, we can read that Gideon was told by God to get up and attack the camp of the Midianite. But we can also see how for the second time, God repeated his promise to Gideon. And so the author of Judges is emphasizing Uh, focusing our eyes back to the word of the Lord, back to the promise of God that was given to Gideon. God said that he will hand over the Midianites to Gideon's hand. Ironically, instead of believing in the mouth of the Lord, Gideon believed on the mouth of an enemy who is also talking or speaking the word of God himself. Verse 14 says, that a Midianite concludes his dream that God has handed over the entire Midianite camp over to Gideon, the son of Joash. And so what is being communicated to us here by the author? That Gideon's eye is now being focused to the word of God. What does the Bible tell us about faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So Gideon needs to hear the word of God 
Even if God will use the mouth of an enemy to proclaim His word. Let that not happen to us, brothers and sisters. The word of the Lord is being proclaimed to us week in and week out. Here in the pulpit, in the discipleship meeting, in every one-to-one discipleship, let our faith increase because it is only increasing when we hear the word of the Lord. About faith, it is assured in, his, in God's word. Uh, faith is also an exchange of fear and pride with a humble worship of God. Look at verse 15. We can see a total change in, in Gideon's behavior. He humbled himself before God by bowing down in worship. And so now we can see that Gideon is acknowledging who is in charge. God, it's not me who is in control. It is you who is in control. Whatever might happen with my 300 men, it's up to you. But I trust in your good sovereign care. Third, faith is to entrust oneself in the sovereign care of God through our obedience. And we can see that running from verse 16 to verse 18. Gideon and his men entrusted themselves to God by relying on a simple method. And what is that method? If we read verse 18 and verse 8, compare them together, we can read that there's no weapon given or no weapon that was emphasized by the author of Judges. What they have is ram's horn and a pitcher in their hand. Is that enough to kill the enemy? No, it is not. But what we can see here is that the author again is trying to point our eyes to the whole counsel of the Bible. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 5, it says that when there is a prolonged blast of the horn, ram's horn, trumpet, and you hear its sound, have all the troops give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse and the troops will advance, each man straight ahead. What I read, read to you is the account of Joshua surrounding the walls of Jericho with the priests carrying the ark of the Lord. Here, in our passage today, Gideon and his men are entrusting themselves to God by going back, recalling how God has saved Israel. They are now remembering the Lord and His salvation by looking back at what Joshua has done. And then, notice in verse 20, the Israelites shouted for a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. See what's happening here? They have ram's horn and pitchers in hand, but they see it as God's weapon to defeat the enemies. It is God's word that God uses to defeat our enemy that oppresses us. Then in verse 23, Israel was called just for receiving the plunder of God's finished work of deliverance. So part of their obedience is to receive what God is giving them. So faith is entrusting oneself to the sovereign care of God, whatever God's plan is, we don't know, through our obedience because we trust in His word. Faith is trusting His word. Faith, exchange of fear and pride with humble worship of God exhibited through our obedience. Now the story of deliverance in Gideon's account is similar to many Old Testament story of deliverance. There are many things that we can remember how good took a fearful men like Gideon. He took Moses and turned him to a fearless Moses facing Pharaoh. But like Gideon, who has received many signs so that his faith would be developed, Moses also received signs, stuff turning into snake, water into wine, clean hands into leprosy and back. We can also think about Joshua. 
In the same way that God handed over to Joshua the city of Jericho, and they did this by humble reliance to the Lord, in this account, the same thing is happening. Gideon also rely themselves to the Lord and humbly rely on God's control. They surrounded the enemy camp and gave a loud shout. And so what I'm trying to communicate is look to the whole counsel of God and develop our faith there. Increase our faith by looking at the whole counsel of God. Look to Moses, Joshua, Gideon's account, but most of all, look to Jesus Christ, in whom Moses, Joshua, and Gideon points forward to about God's deliverance. Jesus Christ is the better Moses. Jesus Christ is the perfect Joshua. Jesus Christ is the fearless Gideon. We need to rely on God humbly through Jesus Christ. And so now that we can learn these things from this account, maybe it's time for us to ask ourselves some spiritual diagnostic questions. Do you need signs or proof before believing what God has said in His Word? It's ironic that sometimes God's children delay their obedience to God until His Word starts to make sense through the face of a fearful circumstances. Just like how God's Word made sense to Gideon through a fearful circumstances, even in the mouth of the enemy. Do we need God to speak to us in this way in order to believe what He says in His Word? This passage tells us that we should believe His Word and obey Him without fear by entrusting ourselves to the Lord completely surrender 100% without reservation. And so today, ask yourself, what is it that you are so afraid to give up to the Lord because you think it will take away your peace, it will, it will take away your joy, and it will take away your pleasure? The word of the Lord tells you to obey without fear and humbly rely on the sovereign care So faith is our humble reliance in God's word exhibited through fearful, uh, fearless disobedience. But we need to know that obeying God is something that we should do and continuously undoing it until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not something we do once and then go back to, the, to, to, to being the way we were. That's what we will, be, we will see in the next passage. Read with me in chapter 7, verse 23, down to chapter 8, verse 3. And that is our last point, faithfulness tested. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim with this message. Come down to intercept the Midianites and take control of the water courses ahead of them as far as beth and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took control of the water courses as far as beth and the Jordan. They captured Oreb and Sib, the two princes, princes of Midian. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Sib at the winepress wine of Sib. When they, while they were pursuing the Midianites, they brought the heads of Oreb and Sib to Gideon across the Jordan. The men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us, not calling us when you went to fight against the Midianites? And they argued with him violently. So he said to them, What have I done compared to you? Is not the gleaning of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizer? God handed over to you Oreb and Sib, the two princes of Midian. What was I able to, com- to do compared to you? When he said this, their anger against him subsided. Now to understand our last point, we need to learn some military terms. One princess is equivalent or one king that they have defeated is equivalent to one country or territory that Israel can occupy. 
Now the problem is, again, Israelites miss their focus. Instead of remembering the Lord for who He is and what He has done, their eyes are now focused on the plunder. Every Israelite tried to plunder and they forgot the Lord. And this can be seen in our passage when Sebulun was missing. Sebulun appears to be out of the picture. The obedience that is indicated here should be receiving what God has accomplished in His work. God has defeated the enemy, and so Israel should be there to receive the inheritance from the Lord. Second thing that we can see from this passage is that Gideon tried to undercut God's glory by saying, For Gideon and for the Lord. For the Lord and for Gideon. And so he wants to share the glory that belongs to the Lord. But then, he undercuts again the glory of God when Abraham, the tribe of Abraham, was contending with him. Gideon explained to the Ephraimites that what Gideon has done is lesser compared to what the Ephraimites has done. And so basically, Gideon was saying to the Ephraimites that what the Lord has done through me was nothing compared to what you have done, Ephraimites. What the, our last passage is trying to communicate to us is that this account happened to the Israelites' lives so that they would remember God and His salvation. That didn't happen in the last portion of our passage. Brothers and sisters, even though this is the story of Gideon, we can learn from it in our time today. We could surrender up our will to God and trust in His sovereign plan. We can give to Him all the glory by remembering who He is and His salvation. Let fear and pride be submitted to God and let us trust the Lord in His sovereign care. Let us all pray.